Hello. Hey, hey Nicole. Hi, Jennifer. Hi there. And uh, hi, everyone who's listening. This is Jennifer Jazz, and you are tuning in to another podcast with me. This is Letters Off Paper. And I'm with Nicole Ashoff, which is extremely exciting for me for many reasons. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, there's so many questions that I have for you, um, but I wanted to begin somewhere um, that just gives me some insights into how you became an editor and a writer. Um, I should mention that Nicole is the author of The Smartphone Society, Technology, Power, and Resistance in the New Gilded Age. Um, I believe she co-wrote that with uh, Linda Bevilacqua-Farber. Is that correct, Nicole? Um, no, I didn't co-write that with her. I wonder why that's showing up Okay. that. Hmm, interesting. But, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you also are the author of The New Profits of Capital, which was published in 2015, right? Yep, that's right. Yeah. And you are the editor of Jacobin Magazine, which is, well, it's a leftist news site um, with like 3 million readers a month. I think a lot of people read Jacobin Um and uh, yeah, it's just got a different feeling to it than a lot of the other um, leftist publications. It's not so depressing or frustrated sounding. That's why I like to read it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, okay. So my first question for you is how, how did you become like so deeply anchored in, in leftist thought and, and leftist politics? Well, you know, Jennifer, it's kind of funny. I mean, I grew up poor, white, working class in rural New Jersey. And our house growing up was, if I had to characterize it, it was apolitical. Um, and I never really thought about political ideas. Uh, I was kind of passionate about the environmental movement, but only in a really superficial way because I didn't really engage with the world of ideas that much. I mean, I was kind of a nerd always, but just in a very disorganized way. So it was really when I went to college, um, I, I went to Rutgers University in New Jersey, and uh, it, was, it was an enlightening experience in the sense that for the first time I was kind of, you know, getting ideas and hearing ideas that I had never heard before from my professors and from, you know, people that I met there. So it was, it was really eye-opening. I mean, it's kind of like the right-wing critique of the university as the hotbed of like progressive ideas was <laughs> right on when it came to me. It was like definitely warped my mind. Um, and I guess like in terms of how I became interested in, in radical ideas, you know, some of it was in my like critical like literary theory classes but also I was a history major and I took a lot of classes um you know on topics like the Vietnam War and colonialism mm. and I had really great professors and I just got kind of passionate and from there I decided to go to grad school with you know study with Marxists and um just kind of went from there so I don't know I, I mean it's a, a strange kind of journey I, I feel like I almost joined the Air Force instead of going to college. Wow. So I really could have ended up in a totally different direction. But Wow, that's strange yeah. and interesting. Uh, what, what, what era were you in 
doing your like in your university years was it the 90s or yeah so it was it was um you know the late 90s and I immediately you know I talked about ideas but I also immediately became involved in like local organizing against police brutality in New Brunswick but also you know that was kind of the high point of the anti-globalization movement and so I was really involved both at like the campus level but also you know, organizing with a kind of international framework viewpoint, um, you know, kind of pre-social media, thinking about fighting, you know, the free trade agreement of the Americas and, and stuff like that. So that was definitely a big part of my political education as well. Mm, what what were some of the books that, that you read that helped you to like clarify your perspective and, and books that inspired you? Well, funnily enough, actually, one of the um, kind of the first books that I ever read that really made me think about ideas in a deep way was actually Raymond Williams' Culture and wow. Society. Oh, yeah. my God. Oh, <laughs> that is so incredible. Yeah. Did you, oh, I don't know if I, I sent you a PDF of my memoir, and I mentioned Raymond Williams' Culture and Society being a turning point for me. <laughs> oh, my God. That's crazy. Yes, you have to check out the blue section of my memoir, and I, I, I become obsessed with that specific book. Oh, that's that's wild! Wow. Yeah, that's a, that's pretty heavy. Um, <laughs> tell me, tell me, what was it about Raymond Williams that that got you excited? Well, you know, it's a little bit of biography and a little bit of ideas. I think, like um, early on, I also read an interview with him in the New Look Review, and so he's kind of talking about his background. You know, also someone who was just like grew up really working class. And so I, I felt like that was kind of interesting for me to feel like he was someone who was, you know, really had gone far from where he began. But th he was also really passionate about, um, you know, trying to think about building power for working class people, but wasn't afraid of engaging with ideas just for the sake of engaging with ideas. Like he really cared about truth and and creating knowledge and understanding culture so I think it was that kind of blend of like radicalism but also yes. like real deep intellectualism that really yes. spoke to me what turned me on about him was that he just seemed so grassroots so guy next door to me yeah I was like wow I had never seen that that intersection before and it gave me a a sense of hope really or not hope but like a sense of strength, power, because I had come, I come from very working class roots. And um, I think that I fell into more of a middle class or even upper middle class kind of um, social circle at some point. And I was reading, of course, all of the books that were exciting within that circle, Naked Lunch or um, Kathy Acker, anything that seemed radical, anything that seemed fun. But I still had some serious concerns about the world and a kind of working class perspective that I filtered everything through. So when I discovered him on a shelf next to Simone de Beauvoir, and I forget who else, he really kind of spoke to me directly, like personally. And I really, I reached for that book and I kept it, like I stole it basically. So <laughs> <laughs> I really did steal that book as Abby Hoffman recommended. Um, okay. Um, so, um, like, how did you begin to act on some of the ideas that you were excited by? 
Well, I mean, in part, like going to grad school, which ended up being kind of a seamless process for me. And I went to Johns Hopkins where, you know, they, they pay you enough money to just be a student. So I didn't have to, you know, get an extra job. And they really took being a scholar very seriously. My advisors did. So, you know, that was a way for me to kind of learn because I was, I was really doing a lot of activism and as an undergrad, but I had this moment where I just felt like I didn't really understand a lot of what I was doing um, in terms of, you know, how it fit in with global capitalism or, and I didn't really feel like I had the kind of intellectual base to um, move beyond kind of mobilizing and marching and these things. So I really wanted to learn more and grad school made that easy. Um, But I think that kind of alienation that you were talking about just a minute ago of like being from the working class, but all of a sudden hanging out with a lot of middle-class and upper-class people was something that I really struggled with in grad school and also, you know, afterward in academia and like doing a postdoc. So I think part of why I started doing stuff with Jacobin was that I wanted to kind of use my education as a way to connect with, you know, more ordinary people who were also looking for ideas. Um, Because it's really easy to just kind of retreat into academia and talk to each other and, you know, (laughs) not worry about the relevance of anything you're saying for like building worker power. So. Hmm. Um, Well, well, let's talk a little bit about the audience that Jacobin speaks to and the audience that Jacobin doesn't speak to um, because you operate in a strange country, in a strange space. Um, do you think, what do you think about people who don't read Jacobin, who are kind of just like liberals, um, who have some sense of being not, okay, they have some idea of themselves not being Republicans or reactionaries, but they're not really leftist like and I think there's a huge population of people like that who are more of a demographic than a political force um by demographic I mean you know like consumption data like you know they listen to this music they buy these clothes they tend to live in this area but they don't seem to be um driven by any particular political desire beyond those that are offered to them on a plate by the existing prevailing powers in DC kind of um, it's like a lazy left. Like, tell me, like, I mean, that's not even, um, like, what do you think? Like, you know, about the people who don't read Jacobin, but who probably are not Republicans or. I mean, the I don't know. It's kind of weird. Like the, the audience of Jacobin, like I always kind of had hoped it would be more kind of working class and, it kind of is in some sense that if we think about like young precarious 20 somethings are part of the working class um, and many of them are graduate students, that's true. Um, and there are some, you know, Uber drivers who are, who are reading Jacobin, but Jacobin also wow. <laughs> definitely appeals to, a, you know, the kind of academic set for sure too. But then, you know, the broader kind of group of what you call the lazy left. I like that term. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is this is part of the problem in general for thinking about organizing in the United States. And it's partly, 
the sort of complete delegitimization of like the left as a project and as a set of ideas, you know, mm. in in the seventies that we're still kind of contending with today. So it's like, yeah, people got excited about Bernie and they are, are thinking about, you know, the possibilities of organizing, but what does it really add up to, you know, like that's not always clear. So, you know, a publication like Jacobin inserts itself in an attempt to throw some new ideas out there, but it, it, it's pretty limited of a broader vision of like building an actual people to change the broader hierarchy of power, which that's, that's kind of negative, but. <laughs> well, it's something that made me want to ask you this. Um, do you think that the American capitalist system allows for um, critical thinking or even freedom really? Because I'm like looking at it from a distance and I just don't see that there's space for critical thinking. There's just, the only thing you can do over there, it's like do or die. And I just don't see the space to, to kind of step back and make um, critical observations or even radical decisions, like how? And, and when you talk about radicalism in a, in a police state, and that's putting it politely, they've got so many weapons. And I mean, it's like a country to me, more and more, the United States resembles Afghanistan, like a country of rogue gunmen um, who fire on schools, who fire on the innocent routinely, regularly, and people don't say anything, which is more frightening than the gunmen now. Um, tell me, like, where's the revolution coming from? Like, how? How is it possible in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a situation like the US? It's like this weird fairy tale. Yeah, and I think. Challenges um, of that when you're thinking about how do you actually go about building something in a police state is that the spaces that we're often told or the devices and machines that we're often told are are revolutionary or have revolutionary potential. Um, I think we really overstate that you know that that reality. I mean, one of the reasons why I wrote the smartphone book was just to really actually think critically about the smartphone as a, you know, reflection of social relationships and in doing so to think critically about these kind of social media platforms as a tool for organizing and, and to, you know, not overstate their, their potential for building, you know, a power. So in, I think in some sense, I'm kind of old fashioned when we think about how do you actually change you know, a police state, you have to actually create, you know, vehicles that give voice to working people. Um, and, in, and in order to do that, you have to actually disrupt um, the status quo and disrupt production. And, and that becomes a very hard question. How do you actually do that? And I, I don't think you really do that on Twitter or, or Facebook. If something can't be done on Twitter or Facebook, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I have observed, you know, that we've developed some type of distance from, from the world. Now, I have a lot of friends in New York who seem to be enjoying themselves in, in public, on the streets, and riding their bikes and stuff. And maybe they, don't, maybe they would not agree. But 
when I left, I felt that it wasn't a city that I could be physical in in a spontaneous way anymore, not as it had been. I felt that the streets felt awkward, that people seemed naked in the streets when, because they weren't behind their computers, that computers had created um, some kind of, I don't know, insecurity about being exposed from, you know, you know your entire body and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's how I felt. And I sensed it from people around me. But one thing that really was very tangible was the uh, effect of Fox News on my neighborhood. Um, I was renting an apartment in a pretty like conservative neighborhood where people, you know, hung flags outside their homes. But before Fox News, I think people just kind of kept to themselves and it wasn't it wasn't so charged. But by the time Fox by the time Fox News was covering riots in Missouri and that type of thing, when I'd walk through the block, I'd see people just looking like they were about to explode. And when I'd walk by, they'd stop talking. And then when I moved a little bit away, they'd begin talking again and I could hear the rage. Um, I would enter like a pizzeria and ask for a slice and they would purposely ignore me. And I was like, wow, this shit's getting personal. I'm out, I'm out of here. It's getting personal. I mean, it always has been, but I mean, to me, it just seems like that country is teetering closer and closer to some kind of confrontation between the parties that are beefing like a real kind of civil war type vibe because you have the guns, they're every bloody where. And it's the country does seem like people have kind of doubled down on their difference. And this is not the era of Dr. King. No, it, I don't see how we'll ever get there from here either. So what do you think? I mean, am I pessimistic or? Well, one thing that really struck me over the last year, which kind of, you know, aligns with what you're saying is just, how you know we talk about how every single conversation is and how it's you know in the past four years in particular it comes down to whether whatever you're saying puts you in the trump camp or not the trump camp you know it, it allows no room for nuance but i think we what really was striking and a bit depressing is really impacted the way the country dealt with the COVID-19 pandemic and in by extension how it kind of hid really deep kind of um, power dynamics at play and how we could and I say that coming from you know Cambridge which was like you know everybody was demonstrating their you know superior moral citizenship by and you know mm. pushing for the hardest lockdown ever while we still saw working class people having to go to work every day and um, we just you know lauded them as heroes and essential workers but did nothing else to support them so I think it's like what as a roundabout way of saying like I, I think that there are real ramifications for the politicization of like everyday life in this kind of binary um, democrat or republican categorization I think it makes it really a lot harder hmm. Do you think just a simple thing like the the birth of a third party? I mean, there are other parties obviously on the ballot, but do you think that you know a third party that had some kind of reach and was able to connect with millions of people would make a difference? Because I don't, I really don't. I think the only way it would make a difference is if 
it was connected to an actual, you know, movement of like a grassroots movement that had the power to actually like and and make it in you know, like an economic impact in the way that the labor movement uh, once did. I think that's really the only way. If it's just a kind of, you know, party that exists on social media platforms and occasionally elects people to like local city councils. No, I. I... <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, but what about the Trump effect? Trump made the United States look like you know a country you know, in some region where you have dictators and strikes and food shortages. He, he like took the United States in that direction, okay? Um, he, he used the rhetoric of dictators, you know? And um, he also turned a population on everyone else. He just sicked them on everybody else. And um, basically the clock is ticking and Trump is rubbing his hands together, you know, like a mosquito before they bite and you know, he's coming and he's being deployed by people who need him. That's the other thing I don't like, all the the secret players in DC and how difficult it is for the average person to comprehend that what you see isn't really what's happening and stuff like that, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? Like they're all, like one thing I, I picked up for a while when I was working for a company, I had no choice but to work for, for a few companies at one point in my life, that was the only way I could keep going. I noticed that when we did these big events, it, you would have politicos, CEOs, always together. And they're always talking about money, finance, investments, and every conversation those guys engaged in was basically insider trading. You know, by, yeah. by, by, you know what I mean? It was just like, and I just, I always, ever since that, that time when I worked, you know, it, well, I, had, well, I, was in, I was in rooms with like Michael Eisenstein, Colin Powell, Kofi Annan. And it's like someone could say something as simple to you, is to you as, yeah, you know, we're developing these mines that are doing fabulously in Sao Paulo. Or, um, yes, we've just discovered that, you know, the Amazon will be our next hotspot for the pharmaceutical industry. Like strange stuff, you know, like mm -hmm. strange stuff. And it's just like, oh, really? Okay. And then you go and you, you, know, you, you get online or whatever, wherever you, you do your investing, wherever you buy your stocks, and you can move with that stuff. That's what they call qualitative data. You know, it's not quantitative data. It's just like, oh, well, if that's happening, then that means that gold is going to do this. Oh, yeah, I'm going to buy shares of that. What's the company that's investing in that? Oh, okay, cool. I'm going to buy shares in that. But that's not insider trading. It's just conversation. But it is insider trading. That stuck with me that the powerful can just congregate in a room and a simple conversation can be like, just become like money, just, just like that. Like that's what they do when they're together. They just share tips on how to get richer. Yeah. Um, yeah that's what they do. I can vouch for it. <laughs> <laughs> that's really what they do. And so Ever since I kind of experienced that, I'm, I just feel like the voting process and the relationships, even between, you know, Pelosi and Mitch McConnell, I think that there's some theatricality to that, and that behind the scenes, that they all have great portfolios and. No doubt, know, no doubt. Yeah. With her double fridge. Well, her husband's an investor, investment banker. I think that's problematic. Yeah, I mean, I. I it's interesting, like, I think 
what you witnessed at your job was just kind of like the nuance of our broader kind of disenfranchisement. Like much deeper is the fact that like working class people don't vote is the fact that the things that hmm. we're able to vote on and <laughs> their impact on our everyday life are really slim. And there's like a variety of reasons why. One, which you were pointing to, is like the power of capital to, you know, have access to the halls of power. But it's also the disempowerment of Congress vis-a-vis the executive over the past 50 years, you know, just like the absolute power of a smaller and smaller group of people to, you know, shape the direction that the country is going. And I think it's I don't know, for me, if I, if I think it think of it as, you know, a kind of broader process of disenfranchisement, it can, you know, clarify the call for, like, not just more democracy, but, like, actual, like, qualitatively rich, like, a demand to have more control, you know, an expanded number of spheres of our life. So I think, yeah. Well, how do we stop you know, the socialist message of, of a new site like Jacobin from becoming just another brand because it just seems that that's the ultimate fate within that system, that everything just becomes a brand or a lifestyle option at best. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I was reading your your piece on Basquiat and it's like, I think you've actually dealt with this question in a, in a more tangible way and this sort of the, the tension between art and the commodity and capitalism and I think that kind of is really the same pressure that exists in a space and like Jacobin in particular like it's really easy for um actually there was just a piece up I think Alex Press wrote it on the site today about how some like food company was Socialist, but like union busting, you know, <laughs> and you know, so it's it's really hard um, because it's really easy for these ideas to just become, you know, a mechanism for profit making. But I think that, you know, so it's it's a struggle. Um, but if you just remind yourself that it's always a struggle and that it's part part of the struggle is like maintaining principles um, and not just trying to exist as an institution, you know, you can get there. What's with our fascination with Elon Musk and, and Zuckerberg <laughs> guys, because we don't have, we don't have like any role models. I don't think that can match their popularity. Well, I mean, my take on it has always been, I mean, and there's always the sort of deep American love for like the, the strong man and the successful entrepreneur. Um, so that's, there. but I think it's also blended with the era of Silicon Valley, particularly after the 2008 financial crisis. And it really was, I think that people like, you know, and, and Musk and, you know, the Google guys and even Amazon, you know, Bezos, they really were presenting a vision of like growth and they were thinking about, you know, sort of crazy projects and they weren't always just talking about the next quarterly earnings. And I think this was really refreshing for people and it created a kind of narrative that was different from, you know, Wall Street and, um, you know, political insiders. And a lot of people drank the Kool-Aid. 
Yeah, I mean, why though? I mean, okay, I, I think one reason people drank the Kool-Aid is because those guys, um, they were strategically dressed in T-shirts and jeans all the time at the beginning, you know? And it was manipulative, you know, especially Zuckerberg. But the thing with him, on one hand, it seems like he's just cunning and super smart. And on the other hand, he seems like he's really slow. And, and you know what I mean? Like super slow and insensitive. He just kind of had one idea and, and people threw cash at him to push it forward, but there's not much going on upstairs with him. He seems kind of like a dimwit, you know? <laughs> I think like, I think a lot of those guys, I mean, you know, some of them are really different. So like Peter, Peter Thiel and Elon Musk and, and Zuckerberg are all like pretty different from each other. Some of those huh. guys. <laughs> are you sure? <laughs> different in the sense of their, um, I think their kind of like affect and worldview. Mm. But in terms of their like willingness to cozy up to venture capitalists, no, they're absolutely together, united, arms linked. Um, but I think like the the image that they portrayed of themselves, particularly someone like Zuckerberg or, you know, a lot of these kind of like um, slouchy t-shirt wearing tech guys. This was from an authentic kind of tech nerd that did exist in the California in the 70s, right? Like there was that that was a real kind of position. Um, but it's like you were talking about with, you know, of public publishing or art, it like quickly becomes you know, the idea of using the internet as a kind of liberatory tool quickly becomes corrupted when, um, you know, the need to make a profit uh, becomes the dominating logic. And I think that's really the case um, with most of these kind of Silicon Valley startups. Certainly, you know, Google, uh, Shoshana Zuboff's book um, really does a nice kind of detailed explanation of that, of how the the search engine that the Google guys made, you know, quickly it became totally necessary for them to make a a, a product a profit, and their whatever kind of lofty aims they had were thrown out the window. So, hmm. Hmm. I'm not sure about the whole Google operation. I I don't I know a little bit about Sergey Brin. Um, is that his name? I yeah, that's, that's one of them. Yeah, and Larry, Larry yeah. Page. Yeah. All those guys are suspicious to me. They just kind of <laughs> pop up. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I don't trust any of this. Okay. I have one question for you. That's it. And I'm going to let you go because it's Sunday and you have better things to do than sit here and try to decipher uh, what's going on. I, I, I really don't, but. <laughs> okay. Here's my last, my last and final question. And this is kind of, well, let's see. When you wake up in the morning, like, in the morning, like, what do you wish would happen um, that probably will not happen, but you want it to happen in, in the United States or in the world even? That's a deep question. I think, well, I, w I want a lot of things, but I think one of the things that makes me um, a little sad, and I taught a class this semester at UMass Boston, and I actually really like my students. I didn't get to connect with a lot of them because it was a, a lot of my students were, you know, working one or two jobs, taking classes, raising kids, and I felt like they were really genuine, earnest people who wanted to learn but also make their way in the world. But a lot of them felt really disempowered.
I see that around me a lot. People who are suffering from a kind of malaise, which is the undertone is a sense of disempowerment and I don't want to say hopelessness, but really just a feeling like they can't insert themselves into, you know, history and become an actual important, you know, part of history. And so I wanted to, and this sounds kind of cheesy, I guess, but I'm a romantic. If I really wanted something, I would want people to feel like, uh, you know, a sense of agency and they could be a powerful Mm. agent for change. I really do feel like if people believe and the ability for you know change from below that they can actually build something but there's such a powerful drive to disempower people or to scatter their energies into useless corners that you know becomes diluted but i i really i think if people really believe they can change something that we can really get somewhere yeah i guess that would make a big difference No, I mean, yeah, it would make somewhat, it could possibly make a difference. It's hard to really say. I mean, a lot of what happens, you know, in the U.S., it, it's like witchcraft or something spooky about those congressmen and stuff. Like, who knows what they do behind the scenes? They're scary, all of them. All of yeah. them. I mean, they're duplicitous, they're greedy, they're horrible people, and they're in charge of, of the world, it seems, you know? The world seems pretty comfortable with that, too, or, or too afraid to challenge it or something. Who knows? Anyway, yeah. Nicole Ashoff, thank you so much for hanging out with me. I'm really happy that we spoke. I'm really super happy that we spoke. And I hope we, we can I hope we can do this again sometime in the future. Yeah, I'd love to. I had a really a nice time. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah. Okay. Well, take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.